You know, we've been talking about um, Lent and how to clear away the distractions in order to be able to see what's really true. And when it comes right down to it, what's really true in life? What is it that we're here to do? What's our purpose as human beings? And it really comes down to connection. It absolutely is connection. It is learning to function as one, both with each other and also with God's Spirit. And to become aware enough and sensitive enough that you can tell which way the wind is blowing because spirit is wind and wind is spirit and breath all at the same time. But to be able to, to feel that, that breeze and to flow with it is so much a part of this contemplative experience that we keep going on and on about, which we believe is exactly where Jesus is trying to take us. This last um, couple of weeks... I've been going through the Holy Week liturgical experience that will be starting next Sunday with Palm Sunday. And it's fascinating to me the way the liturgy has captured both on the top level the story of Jesus' last week on earth. From, from Palm Sunday to Holy Saturday and then Easter Sunday, each of the days, which has a name and has traditional scriptures from the Gospels attached to them, have told this story of, of this passage, uh, this last week in Jerusalem for Jesus. But at the deeper level, if, if we really look under the surface, we find that there are messages in those parables, in those stories, in those passages of Scripture that are giving us the, the passage through Jesus' way, this way of his. He said that we should follow him, follow this way, and that we would find truth and truth would make us free. And so... How do we know what that is? How do we know if we're really on it? What defines this way? And we've been looking at multiple ways of, of trying to understand what's the nuts and bolts? What's the concrete action that we can take so that we know that we know that we know that we're following Jesus' way? And here's another template for us. Here's another way to do that. And we looked at Palm Sunday. And when we looked at Palm Sunday, we looked at the fact that the whole point of Palm Sunday, and we'll talk more about it next Sunday in more detail, was that we have to learn to be able to see past our own agendas, past our own desires, past our own expectations, past our own biases and prejudices in order to see Jesus as Jesus is, truth as truth is, to be able to really know the hour of our visitation. We have to see past all of our internal stuff. And then Fig Monday, which was the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple juxtaposed together. And we talked about the fact that the temple and the fig tree were symbols of Israel. Israel as a nation and Israel as a, as a religion, both, in Scripture. And from a distance, they all looked like they were beautiful and nurturing. But when you get up close and get inside, you realize that they are barren that they have become corrupted. And this is what Jesus was trying to unmask. The message for us is that after we look past all of our own agenda and biases, then we have to learn to look past the culture's distractions, the culture's deceptions, the religion, the church's distractions and deceptions, and and everything external to ourselves to be able to then maintain the direction of the truth. And then when we looked at Holy Tuesday, the, the story of the prudent and the, and the uh, wise virgins, the, sim, the idea was watchfulness and readiness, but the, the, 
the underlying idea here is balancing, as the Hebrew bride would have to in the wedding ceremony that's evoked by that passage, balancing between anticipation and, and uh, the desire for the new life that is coming, but at the same time being completely rooted and immersed in the life that already is. Balancing between future and present, between anticipation of something new and just sucking all of the life out of what already is. Wednesday, Spy Wednesday, Judas and Mary. This was the balancing between macro issues, external issues, the poor you will always have with you, right? But here's Mary just pouring her perfume over Jesus' feet because she's completely involved in the micro, in the intimate, vulnerable relationship that she has with Jesus, balancing those two. And so as I was looking at these, and then when we get to Monday, Thursday, which is what I want to talk about briefly this morning, everything's about unity. Everything's about oneness. Everything's about connection. And then I was sitting there last night as I was prepping, and I had an apostrophe otherwise known as an epiphany. (laughs) We've talked in here several times about the stages of spiritual growth, right? And if you're not familiar with them, the one that I like best is Scott Pax, where he has four stages. And the way he characterizes them, you can look it up if you'd like to. It was just eye-opening for me. But the way that I'll shorthand it for you is that stage one is identification with self, identification with the egoic mind that we're always talking about. In other words, everything that you need to survive, everything that you need to, to further your own agenda is going to come from yourself. And so that is this, the focus of, of, of all of your activity is, is self. Stage two is where that focus, that identity moves out from self to the group. So now here's where you drink the Kool-Aid. Here's where you see the group's belief system, the walls of their fortress as being your salvation. Right? And then life mugs you, things happen, and you realize that the things that you believed and that you thought were strong enough to save you aren't. And so you get kicked out of the nest and you're in stage three, which is a loss of identification, feeling like you're now in the wilderness and don't know exactly where you are, where you're going to be. And it's a time of real disillusionment, of anger, of bitterness often. Uh, It can be a time where we get very jaded and cynical about stage two and everything that goes along with it. And we have an opportunity there. We have a choice to make, I should say. We can double down and go back to stage two or even stage one, or we can persevere along that that disorienting, disturbing, uncomfortable path of stage three and then finally break through to stage four, which is connection with ultimate reality directly, which allows us to roam freely you know, in stage two environments, we can be a part of a community, but fully a part of community. So here's, here was where the epiphany came. It seemed to me that these four stages lined up perfectly with the four days that we've been talking about so far, or the five days that we've been talking about so far. Think about it. Stage one is learning, Palm Sunday, is learning to see past your own agenda, your own expectations, your own desires. In other words, to break through from stage one. The Fig Monday is about seeing past and through the deceptions of the environment, of the culture, of the institutions in your life, which is breaking through stage two. Isn't this cool? And then you get into the balancing act that has to happen between future and present and macro and micro and working all that out, which is really what is going on in stage three. 
You're trying to figure out for yourself, no longer just animalistically trying to feather your own nest and no longer taking the hearsay of others and just plunking that down in your life, but now going through the actual interior work of trying to balance all the things that need to be balanced in a mature and present spiritual life. Stage three, and it's disorienting and uncomfortable and very scary sometimes. But if you persist, you end up at Monday, Thursday, which is in the unity of the connection of everything and everyone. It is amazing to me. And, you know, did the writers of Scripture intend this? Did, did the church, you know, 1,500 years ago as the liturgy was being developed, did they intend what I just told you? I have no idea. It doesn't matter. You heard it here first. If this is useful for you, use it. If it's not, put it on the shelf. Let it sit in the back of your mind because I guarantee you at some point as you move down this road, all of these things are going to come back and roost if they're true. If they're not, they won't, and that's a good thing. But the true things will come back and you'll have a place for them on the shelf as you go through. So this to me was just... just, Because I've been talking about this for several years or understanding the liturgy of Holy Week this way. And just last night, I said, hey, that works out completely with the stages of spiritual growth. And why not? Because it is the universal journey that each of us will go through if we are going to get to Monday, Thursday, if we are going to get to the unity that sees the connection in everything, not just segregated into our little parochial groups, not just we're right and you're wrong, us and them mentality, but actually being connected all together, and to see the connection even in the midst of and in spite of the differences. This is what stage four is all about. This is what Monday Thursday is all about. So Monday Thursday, briefly I said last week where it gets its name, it gets its name from the new commandment that Jesus gives. It's a busy day, liturgically. All of the Last Supper is, is covered in Monday, Thursday, and everything that happens at Gethsemane afterwards is covered in Monday, Thursday scriptural readings. And there's four things that happen within the Last Supper. And so it's a busy day. But one of the four is the new commandment that Jesus gives, which in Latin, Jesus would say, mandatum novum dovobis, which means a new commandment I give you. Mandatum, commandment, put forward into Old English, comes, becomes Monday. So Monday, Thursday is commemorating the new commandment, but it's commemorating all of the Last Supper. And what happens at the Last Supper? First thing Jesus does is wash his disciples' feet. Next thing he does is install the Eucharist, the bread and the, and the wine, the body and the blood. He gives the new commandment. And then in John, he gives a prayer. All of John 17 is one prayer. It's all read if you have a red-letter Bible. One long prayer, and the theme of it is unity, unity, unity. In fact, in John, the book of John, the uh, Last Supper takes up five entire chapters. There's only 21 chapters in John. That's 20% of the whole book of John. It's just the Last Supper. It kind of tells you how important it is. Scholars have called it the farewell discourse of Jesus, chapters 14 through 17. But 13 is also setting up the Last Supper as well. And so what I wanted to do quickly this morning, because I know we got lots to do, was to read through and just see how these work to contribute to the unity, the theme of unity, all the way through 
the Monday, Thursday scripture reading. So take a look at John 13, right at, at verse 1. And we didn't do uh, bulletins today because it was just more paper to pick up. But I know maybe Brandon is uh, putting them up there. I see he's conferring with Edward back there. So Anyway, uh, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, supper the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Now, just notice what, what uh, John has done there. That whole first section is giving Jesus pedigree. Having come from heaven, having done having all this, now he gets up from supper, lays aside his, he strips down to his loincloth and puts a towel around his hips. And Jesus is setting, uh, John is setting us up here. Now, it doesn't really set us up as much in Western culture, but I guarantee you the people of John's generation were knowing exactly where he was going. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter, and he said, and Simon said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Good old Peter. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and also my head. It's so Peter, you know. We have to understand to get the impact of what that paragraph is saying, to understand where foot washing comes in this Semitic culture. First of all, in the first century, everybody was wearing sandals or open, open-toed shoes of some sort. Often they were just blocks of wood or blocks of leather with thongs attached to them, and they just, you just tied them to your feet, right? And all the roads were dirt. So have you ever walked along dirt on a hike and you know how dirty your feet get, how your socks get? Imagine if you're barefoot inside open shoes and your foot sweats and the dirt gets on it and it cakes on it and imagine what it looks like. So if you're going from one person's house to another person's house to come to have dinner, you know, imagine what your feet look like. And you do not walk into a Semitic home with your shoes on. You take your shoes off and there would be large pots of water right at the entrance, and you would have to wash your feet. But if you were going into a wealthy enough house, you didn't do it yourself. You know, Your host could do it as a sign of his specific or her specific love for you. But this was reserved to slaves. And not only that, even Jewish slaves couldn't be impressed to wash other people's feet. Only Gentile slaves could be forced to do that. It was culturally and ideologically the most disgusting thing that Jews could do. The feet were the lowest part of the body. They were considered unclean. You didn't show them and you didn't touch them. And so to do this menial task was the lowest of the low. And here is Jesus doing it for his disciples. And everybody was thinking what Simon Peter was thinking. He was the only one who said it because he said everything that came into his head, obviously. 
the shock of what he was doing. Not only that, for him to strip down in front of his disciples, he was the master. To strip down, for a Jew to show skin was indecent. You didn't do it. There's stories in Scripture of Noah and his sons and other places where you just don't show your skin. Here's Jesus doing that as well. He is making such a strong point here. They wouldn't miss it. Of course, they would have been shocked to their core. But we do. Now, starting at verse 12, John puts a capper on it. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. What is Jesus talking about here? This is so central. He's saying the slave is the master in a certain sense, the one who is going to be served. And the master is the slave. He's saying they're really one. This hierarchy that you imagine between master and slave is really just a change in roles. And we're all people. And we're all connected. And we should be serving each other in this way. We can't stand on the ceremony. We can't stand on the hierarchy that even our culture and even our institutional religion is imposing on us. Break it down. Break it down. Look what I am doing for you. Break it down in your own life. Get on everyone else's level. Become one with them. Identify with them. Love them. Have compassion for them. Serve them in ways that you wouldn't imagine would ever be your position in life, that you would ever be called to do. Serve them as if they are you because spiritually they are. This is a call to unity in a way that was so graphic that it was hard for them to accept. Peter almost didn't accept it. But Jesus is trying to get something singular across to them. That's just one out of four. Look at Mark 14, starting at verse 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to them, and he said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, we have to read through all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Interestingly, the book of John doesn't have a Eucharist section in the Last Supper. Five chapters, no Eucharist. He was focused on other things. But we have to read the other three Gospels and also 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about words that Jesus said at the Last Supper that aren't recorded in the Gospels to get the fullness of what he was talking about here. But even the words that he's using, the lachma for the bread, means not only physical bread that we eat as we think of it, but it also meant all provision, everything that we need as human beings. And it was the symbolic provision from God. All wisdom, all knowledge, everything that we need in order to be full humans is encapsulated in that one word, lachma. And Jesus is saying, this provision, this everything that you need is my body. It's who I am. It's my substance. Take this and make it your substance. 
And then he takes the dhamma, the wine, which also means juice or sap or essence at the same time. And he's saying, take this because this is my blood. And they understood blood in a very specific way. It was the life force. It's what animated a living thing. That's why you didn't drink it. That's why you didn't cook your food in it. It was something that was set apart. He said, this dhamma, this essence is who I am. It's everything that animates me. Take this into yourself. Drink it, which would be, of course, anathema, abomination to a Jew if it were real blood. But metaphorically, symbolically, he's saying, take into yourself everything that is provided and everything that animates and make it everything that animates you. In other words, that we become one, indistinguishable, that you've assimilated into your own cells everything that I am. That your every thought, your every word, your every deed is exactly what I would do because we're animated by the same stuff. We're made of the same stuff. This is the Eucharist. This is what Jesus is trying to instill here in his followers and by extension with us. At John 13, starting at verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And the ancient writers, the historians, even the ones that were railing against Christians, the one thing that they always agreed on, these Christians, this sect, even as they're trying to wipe them out, look how they love one another. It was the defining, defining principle, the defining detail of this movement of Jesus' followers, of followers of the way. And what does it mean to love? Ultimately, it means to identify with the beloved. Ultimately, love is not the feeling. Love isn't even the behavior. Those things can be felt and done for all sorts of reasons. But if you identify with the other, if there is a blurring of the line of where you end and they begin so that everything you do to them is as if you did it to yourself, that's the connection. And from that flows the behavior that we would call loving, and from that flows the feeling that we would call affection or sometimes love. Oneness. Multiple things functioning as one. Story after story in the Last Supper is hammering at the same theme, the same topic, the same reality. And look at the last one, John 17. As I said, the entire chapter is one prayer. I just lifted three verses just to give you the flavor, the taste. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, That would include us 2,000 years later, right? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and me. I messed that up. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. John 17 just takes everything else and just puts a bow on it and just locks it down in very plain language. We are to be one with each other as he is one with the Father. Remember what he said in chapter 14. You don't need to see me. You don't need to see the Father. You've seen me. Everything I do is if the Father were doing it right in front of you. That kind of unity, that kind of multiple things functioning as one is the way that we're supposed to function with each other and then also with God's Spirit. 
And so if A equals B and B equals C, A equals C, it's like that. If we can be one with each other, as Jesus is one with the Father, then we're one with the Father too. This is what the way is all about. It's this way of being able to see the truth, to move into kingdom, the Father's kingdom, and let that truth make us free. Free from the fear, free from the obsessive, compulsive drives that fear entails. But wait, there's more. Right after Jesus prays at John 17, he gets up and he walks out and he goes to the... It depends on who you're reading. It's either the Mount of Olives or it's the Garden of Gethsemane, or in in John's case, it's a garden someplace. And things happen in the garden. Now again, John doesn't talk about the agony in the garden. He goes right to the arrest. But the other synoptics all talk about Jesus going into the garden and praying. And take a look at Matthew 26 and verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And of course, he comes back and they're sleeping. And he does this two more times. And we have that story where they they couldn't keep watch with him. And even though it's so compressed here in the little story, the little pericope here, We have to understand that this would have been probably all night long. Luke tells us that he sweat drops of blood. The distress and the blood pressure was probably so great. But here is Jesus doing something really interesting. He's praying a desperate petitionary prayer. He's praying with everything in him, sweating drops of blood, Is there another way? Can I avoid what I know is coming? Hours, praying, asking his Father. But where he comes back to is where he started in the Last Supper. Where he started at John 17, there was a unity. There was a complete connection between him and his Father. The reality of life started to split that apart, but he circles back around Not my will, but your will. In other words, the wills were joined again. And will in Aramaic, the sebiana, is the pleasure, the desire, the delight, the deepest purpose of something. Jesus' deepest purpose circled back around to complete unity again with his Father. And he was stalwart from that point on. The scriptures tell us through Good Friday, onto Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Unity, connection. And so once again, as we look at these, this amazing liturgy that we've been left, this, that we've inherited in the Christian tradition, we have Palm Sunday telling us, break through your own limitations. The things that have been put in place in your life, your emotional programs for happiness and, and survival, your biases, your expectations, and move to stage two, and then break through that. See past the limitations, the deceptions, the distractions of the institutions in your life. 
And then break through that and learn how to balance interiorly, not exteriorly, but interiorly, all the things that need to be balanced in your life, from macro to micro, from future to present, all that delicate balance that is epitomized in the awareness and the presence that each one of us is trying to establish if we're really following Jesus' contemplative way. And then break through that into the fullness of the unity that's possible here where we see how everything belongs. We see how everyone is connected, even when they're acting out so horribly. But we still see them as fellow humans that deserve the connection with us and we with them. This is the beauty of all of this. And where is it all leading? It's leading to Good Friday. And what's Good Friday? Good Friday is the complete surrender Good Friday is the consummation of all of this. Good Friday is the complete laying down of everything that it means to be ourselves for the other. Jesus said there's no greater love than this, than someone laid down their life for their friend. And that doesn't mean just to die for them physically. It means to live for them, laying down everything we've been talking about, laying down so that true unity can really take place. Unity can't take place in the midst of fear. Unity can't take place when all those emotional programs and obsessive compulsive drives are in progress. It can't. That's what separates us. That's what creates us and them. That's what allows us to be able to act out on our brothers and sisters. To let that all go. To move into the consummation of Good Friday. And what does Jesus say on the cross? He says in the book of John, it is finished. And then he breathes his last. And that word finished, tetelestai, in Greek, can mean so many things, but it can mean that it is accomplished. It means that it is complete. It means that it is perfected. Everything, this whole way, comes down to this. It is accomplished. It is complete. And in the book of Matthew, he says, I'm sorry, the book of Luke Into your hands I commend my spirit to commend, to present something for acceptance. I commend my spirit. I lay it down. I completely surrender everything that I have. This is where we're headed. In preparation for what? The rest of Holy Saturday and, of course, the new and risen life of Easter Sunday. This is the shape of the journey. And it's laid out so beautifully. I wish that I could go back into the minds of those church fathers who put this together and say, is this what you were driving at? Is this it? I know it doesn't matter, but it would really be fun. Maybe I'll have that conversation someday. I don't know. But there it is. And it's so clear. And I hope it's clear to you to see how the shape of the journey is encoded in the liturgy, in the New Testament, in Jesus' teaching, and that it is something that Jesus absolutely said that we can do. won't be easy. It's never easy to let go of the things that we're clinging to. But if we can, and we can move through this, and finally lay everything down, the new life of Easter is ours. Let's pray. Father, this is so beautiful. Thank you.
thank you again for all the gifts that you've given us, not just today, not just this last month, but all 12 years of the life of our community here and all of our lives. Everything that has contributed to us being here together at this moment, saying with our presence that this is the most important place that we could be. Father, thank you for everything that you do to bring things together. Thank you for the opportunity to function as one, to have the same delight and purpose and desire that moves us in the same direction and moves us in your direction. Keep us more and more alert, more watchful, more ready, more aware of each opportunity to be able to practice this connection, this unity, and to just feel your pleasure when we run, most importantly. Thank you, Father. Never let us forget. We can only do this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's all stand.